So we're looking again at Daniel 6, the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. And here's the thing that, that we really need to know about this story. Um, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, and you can open up to page 630, which is where you'll find Daniel 6. <clears throat> and, and here's the thing we need to know about this story, Daniel in the lion's den. It's not really about Daniel. Never mind that the story is found in a book called by the name Daniel. And never mind that it's popularly called Daniel in the lion's den. This story is not really about Daniel. And I think Daniel would be the first to tell you that. I mean, isn't it striking that Daniel hardly says or does anything in this whole story? Did you ever notice that? This is a fairly long story. It's 28 verses. And what does Daniel actually say in the whole story? If this were a scene in a play, the person playing Daniel would hardly be considered to have a major speaking part. He has only one line, verses 21 to 22. And that's not until after he survived the night with the lions and the king asks him if he's okay. And then, kind of like the parents who haven't heard from their kid at college for a while, and, and so they text their kid, sign of life, question mark, right? That's what the king's doing here. And only then does Daniel speak. Up to that point in the story, during the whole time that Daniel's being promoted to a high position in King Darius's administration, and then he's being schemed against by his three subordinates and their supporters, and then the king is making a law which will likely cost Daniel his life, and then the conspirators are spying on Daniel and bad-mouthing him to the king. During that whole time, the way the story is told, Daniel says nothing. Nothing. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't argue his case. He doesn't cry out against the injustice. He is completely silent. Meanwhile, the action is swirling around him. The conspirators are conspiring. The king is making laws and then trying to find a way to undo or get around the laws he's made. The conspirators are pressing the king to do Daniel in. But this whole time, Daniel does nothing except pray. Daniel's response to the new law, which says everyone in the kingdom must pray for 30 days to nobody but the king, is that Daniel goes to his room, as was his custom, and prays to the true living God as he had always done. That's all. No politicking, no planning, no legal defense, just a prayer. And other than that, silence. This story is not really about Daniel. Also, we're not told what is going on inside of Daniel in this story. We're not told how he feels about his new promotion. We're not told what he thinks when he finds out there's a conspiracy against him by his new subordinates. We're not told how Daniel reacts when he finds out that it's now against the law to pray. We aren't told what goes on in Daniel's mind as he decides whether to obey the king's new law and stop praying, at least to stop praying publicly for 30 days or not. And we don't know if Daniel is afraid or if he's defiant. All we're told is that he goes and prays. And after he prays and learns that the king found out that he prayed, we aren't told what Daniel thinks as he knows he's headed to the lion's den. Is he afraid? Does he think God will rescue him? Does he fear that God may not rescue him? 
When it comes to what is going on inside of Daniel, all we get is silence. Because this story is not really about Daniel. You know, perhaps the most striking thing of all is that we aren't even told what Daniel does in the lion's den all night. Wouldn't you like to know? Does he sleep peacefully? Does he cower up against the wall of the den all night, fearing that at any moment the lions may charge him? Or does he chat with the angel all night, who's there to protect him? We aren't told any of that. The story is not really about Daniel. In fact, it's so not about Daniel that not even the lions are interested in him. <laughs> Finally, we, we don't see any spiritual growth or spiritual insight happening in Daniel in this story. He doesn't say anything particularly spiritual. He doesn't praise God or, or share any lessons he's learned about God at the end. No, it's actually King Darius who does all the spiritual growing and sharing in the story. As Daniel prepares to go into the lion's den, it's Darius, the pagan king, believe it or not, who tells Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you, or depending on your translation, your God whom you serve continually will rescue you. Before that, it's Darius who, who schemes and, and strives to find a way to release Daniel. Remember, we're, we're uh, not told about Daniel doing anything to change his fate. And then it's Darius who can't sleep all night, who's, who's up worrying and grieving. Again, we don't know what Daniel's doing, what's going on with him in the lion's den. Then in the morning, it's Darius who, who rushes to the den, who, who calls out, evidently with a certain amount of faith and expectation that maybe, just maybe, Daniel's God could rescue him. And finally, it's an overjoyed Darius who writes a letter to his whole kingdom, praising God and telling them all about the God of Daniel and how Daniel's God rescued him from the mouths of the lions. The story is more about Darius's spiritual journey than Daniel's. Why? Why does this story seem to be more about Darius, the pagan king, than Daniel, the godly Jew? Answer? Because what this story is about and what the book of Daniel is about is this. It's about God revealing his glory to the nations. It's about God revealing his glory to the nations. Even evil nations, evil empires. The great Babylonian tyrant Nebuchadnezzar. The arrogant godless successor of him, Belshazzar. The pagan Persian conqueror Cyrus and his contemporary Darius the Mede. You have to realize that, that these were the, the Putins and even the Isises in a way of Daniel's day. Nebuchadnezzar had attacked and decimated God's people, looting and burning their cities, slaughtering thousands, leading many more into exile, some literally with fish hooks stuck through their lips. They were led across the desert. Nebuchadnezzar did this to many other peoples too. His, his cruelties, his inhumanities, his abuses of human rights were notorious as he built a huge empire and proudly boasted in all he had accomplished. And those who succeeded him were not much better. Take, for instance, feeding those who disobey your laws to hungry lions and their wives and children with them. 
these pagan empires were enough to, to send a shudder down the spine of every God-fearing, peace-loving human being. And yet, God was revealing himself, revealing his glory to these tyrants, to these godless, villainous empires. And God was using people like Daniel to do it. That's what this story is about. So, what can we learn from this story? What, or, or, or do we have a role today like the role that Daniel and his friends played? We don't live under an empire as evil as Babylon, yet neither is America these days, uh, by a long shot, a godly nation. And, and we, uh, as God's people, are the people God has placed in this nation to show God's glory to this empire. And while we may not serve a Nebuchadnezzar or a Darius, we may work for someone who's not much quicker to fear God or to give God glory, be it a school principal or a town supervisor or a CEO or an army of middle managers. So question, how are we to live and to work with and for and under such people? Well, we're in luck because that's exactly the question that the book of Daniel was written to answer for us. You know, it's interesting. In our Bibles, Daniel's included among the prophetic books. But in the Jewish Bible, Daniel was not placed with the prophets. Daniel was placed with the wisdom writings. Do you know why? Because the Jews recognized that Daniel is wisdom literature. It's wisdom literature written to teach God's people how to live wisely in the midst of godless empires. So what lessons does it have to teach us? Well, the first lesson is that we've got to remember the bigger story. We've got to remember the bigger story. And we've got to remember that the bigger story is not about us. Just like the story of Daniel in the lion's den is not really about Daniel. It's about the bigger thing that God was doing to reveal his glory to King Darius, to reveal his glory to the nations. We've got to remember that. That's why the book of Daniel is full of awesome visions. Visions of of great statues with heads of gold and chests of silver and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay and And visions of great trees stretching out to the heavens, providing shelter and sustenance to all peoples. And visions of great beasts which arise each in succession and capture the earth and rule over it. Each one represents in succession a a succession of mighty empires. And in each vision we see that there is a God in the heavens allowing these mighty empires to rise, but also judging them and bringing them down when their time has come to an end. This God rules over all and in the end outlasts all of the empires, using them to accomplish his purposes, sometimes despite themselves, often despite themselves. And along the way, God uses his people, people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to witness to these empires that there is a great and awesome God who is far above all, and so all should humble themselves before their greater heavenly king and give him honor and do right, treating people justly and with kindness, as Daniel counsels Nebuchadnezzar earlier in the story. 
That's the bigger story. And as we seek to live wisely among the empires, we must always keep this bigger story fresh and clear in our minds. God gave Daniel great dreams and visions to to ponder and to remember to keep his vision clear. And for us, these were written down in this book, along with many other stories, to keep our vision clear. So we've got to spend time rehearsing these stories to keep the big picture clearly in view. We also learned that Daniel took time to pray three times a day. And we're going to have to develop our own spiritual rhythms if we're going to keep the big picture clear. Because there are competing stories out there, aren't there? The the story of the American dream. The the story of, of educational attainment and career advancement. The story about my rights and my freedoms and my desires. And the politicians that we're going to vote in to best protect and ensure these freedoms and rights and desires. The story of a strong America who's going to make the world safe for democracy. The story of a strong global economy which will allow us once again to enjoy another um, uh, fruitful, lavish Christmas. Some of these stories are partially compatible with God's story. But at points, they compete and they conflict with God's big story. Do we know the difference? Do we have the clarity and the discernment to know when God's big story is challenging and trumping the other stories around us? This takes spiritual energy. It takes discernment. It takes spiritual engagement. And we, like Daniel, need spiritual rhythms to keep our vision clear and our faith strong in what the real big story is. That's the first lesson that the wisdom of Daniel teaches us. The second lesson is related, and it's that we've got to remember who we are in God's bigger story. We've got to be clear about our identity as God's people, as followers of Jesus. Because we are the people that God has chosen and called out from the nations to be God's own. Not because we're better. Not because God has chosen, um, or rather not just for, for our own benefit. But because God has chosen to include us and to involve us in his mission to bless the nations. That's what we see Daniel doing. Notice he doesn't go around condemning the evil empire, although he certainly could have done that. Instead, we see Daniel working for its good. We see him working for its flourishing. He respects it, believing that God has raised it up for a time. Yet neither does Daniel give the empire his unconditional allegiance. He doesn't get completely co-opted by its big story. No, he stands up for God. He keeps God's bigger story in view, and he represents God above all. So when push comes to shove, when the story of the empire clashes with this bigger story of God, Daniel has the courage to remain faithful to God, to give God an even greater allegiance than that he gives the empire, even if it's going to cost him his life. And we've got to strike that balance. On the one hand, how will we ever bless the nations if we have nothing good to say about them? 
and we just separate ourselves from them and heap condemnation on them. On the other hand, how can we bless them if we've become just like them? If we get so shaped by their stories that we let their stories define us instead of the bigger story in which God is revealing his glory to the nations. So two lessons. First, we've got to keep God's bigger story really clear. And second, we've got to keep our identity, our place in that story clear as well. How do we do this? How do we keep the the big story, God's story, crystal clear in our minds and hearts? And how do we shake off the other counter stories which are being drummed into us by society all the time, especially the story that it's all about me and that the world is there to revolve around me? And how do we solidify and cement our identity in that bigger story that, that we're those called by God to be different, to live differently to be God's witnesses, to bring God's blessing to the empires so that God can use us to reveal his glory to the nations? How do we stand strong, especially when we are facing the lion's den? Because make no mistake, there will be times when living as God's people in the midst of a godless empire will get us thrown to the lions. How? Well, We've already seen that for Daniel, it involves having a strong spiritual rhythm. That's one important part of it. And and let me close just on that part with a a story which highlights why this is so important. I borrowed this from a preacher named uh, Craig Brian Larson. A while ago, National Geographic's ran an article about the Alaskan bull moose. The males of the species, according to the article, battle for dominance during the fall breeding season, literally going head-to-head with antlers crunching as they collide. Often, the antlers, which are their only weapons, get broken in the course of these collisions. And a broken antler ensures defeat. So, this means that the heftiest moose with the largest and strongest antlers triumphs in the end. Therefore, the battle fought in the fall is really won during the summer when the moose eats continually. The one that consumes the best diet for growing antlers and gaining weight will be the the heavyweight in the fight. Those that eat inadequately sport weaker antlers and less bulk and don't stand a chance come fall. And there's a spiritual lesson here for us. Spiritual battles await. Will we be victorious? Spiritual tests are bound to come. Will we pass them? Will we stand strong or will we fall in the time of testing? Much depends on what we do before the war begins, before the test comes. The bull moose principle is this. Enduring faith, strength, and wisdom for trials are best developed before we need them. What better time to start preparing than the season of Advent? As this Sunday, we we begin a period of taking time to long and to remember and to repent as we prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Amen.